Welcome to Decades From Home, a podcast about the weird and wonderful side of living in Germany. And all without saying, what is that then? I'm Nick Houghton of 40percentgerman.com and I'm joined by my co-host Simon Maddox. How are you, Simon? Yeah, doing all right, mate. Doing all right. How about yourself? Yeah, uh, I've got back pains, but like no one wants to hear about that. Like I was thinking, do I mention it on the podcast? Have you tried Quark? <laughs> Have I tried Quark? No, I haven't. Uh, it's actually probably the last thing I'm going to try, but... <laughs> I just I tried really strong medication first. I thought that was the way to go. I've even bought a, I even bought a new mattress as, as a remedy. Yeah, yeah. I think the mattress might be a problem. I, I've embraced the new world that we live in since the the start of the pandemic, where you can order things online and it gets delivered reasonably quickly. Yeah, I ordered a mattress and it arrived today. I can't <laughs> carry it up the stairs, but <laughs> but it's here and I can look at it. It looks very nice. Anyway, we're not here to talk about my my shit. <laughs> Um, we've done it. We're out of the troubled teenage episodes and we've hit episode 20. Today is episode 20. To celebrate, we're currently wearing rather fetching party hats and confetti cannons are periodically sprinkling the air with thousands of bits of coloured paper. It's magical. It's a beautiful moment for Simon and I. Is there, is there a particular party song that you would be playing to celebrate the 20th episode? I, I Maybe two unlimiteds, no limit. That's a pretty good party anthem. <laughs> Someone tweeted that this week and I was like, oh yeah. Been in my head since I saw that tweet. Yeah. And I was immediately taken back to school where I uh, started playing tennis. And my mum, being a thrifty Yorkshire woman, didn't buy me a Wilson tennis racket or a Prince tennis racket. I had one called Techno. <laughs> and it had like yes. bright coloured like neon strings. Yeah. And I remember really vividly one of the older boys taking that off me, like stealing it out of my hand and then doing two, two unlimiteds, no limit, using the racket as like his his drum. Uh, so yeah, that, that trauma came rushing back. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 as, as I replied to the tweet, I think um, the reason I remember two unlimited is my brother threw the LP at me and it just missed my head and embedded into the wall. And we frequently talk about it when I speak to him, like most most weeks. And uh, we'll, we'll laugh about it now, but it was quite horrific at the time. Uh, but It's pretty weird that we both got trauma. Yeah. That's why we're so close. <laughs> anyway, hopefully hopefully this the, the episode today will have no, 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 no limits. Um, <laughs> this is not in the script, everyone. Nick's gone rogue. I've gone rogue, guys. <laughs> so uh, This week we're taking on some of the big questions about Germany. Well, obviously not too big, uh, not too big to fill a, an entire episode, but big enough that we can bundle them together for a Decades From Home Frequently Asked Questions special. We've scoured the internet for 20 of the most frequently asked questions about Deutschland. Are you ready, Simon? I, I, I believe so. This has been fun to prepare. Uh, people have a lot of questions. It's a, it's a questionable place, is Germany, so I'm not surprised. So, question one. Why are German words so long? I hadn't noticed myself. <laughs> piece, of, piece of cake, learning this language. So, I mean, obviously, yeah, German does have a reputation for this. And it comes from single words can be joined together to form new, longer words. And in English, we call this a compound noun. In this way, larger ideas can be expressed more concisely, uh, as long as it's not, like, overdone. So most compound words in German consist of just two or three words. Here we have uh, a few examples, some of our favourites or some of the most famous. Nick, do you want to try the first one? I feel like this segment has been set up to use me as some kind of comedy foil and I'm willing and able. I was planning to read all these myself because I, I, I did think you might get that vibe. You seem brave. Were you Is he so impressed with my <laughs> practice run that you thought, this guy's got it, he's got it, let's see what he can do. So the first word is... 
Rindfleisch etiketierungs überwachung. Sorry, let's try that again. Rindfleisch etiketierungs überwachungs aufgaben übertragung gesetz. Pretty good. That's a lot of letters. Look at me go. That already is a lot of letters. That is a lot of letters, and it's a very specific thing. You were explaining it to me earlier. What is this word? Yeah, so in English, this is the Beef Labeling Act. Now, I mean, this is a sort of a bit of a joke word. It does exist, but it's definitely not part mm. of the sort of common parlance. Nobody is talking about this outside of the beef labeling industry, I guess. Mm. Um, so, yeah, thanks for giving it a go. You're never going to need it again. You're never going to see it just walking around the streets of Germany. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> Maybe if you get like a temp job in a slaughterhouse, it <laughs> might come up. Uh, other than that, I decided to try and pick some that were sort of actual real words that you might actually meet uh so the next one is 39 letters long uh yeah that's right 39 letters and it's the longest in everyday use apparently uh and that's rechtsschutzversicherungsgesellschaften just as a regular everyday use word in the insurance sector and obviously insurance is a pretty big deal in germany you have to have multiple insurances that word means legal expenses insurance companies it is the plural and that's why it gets the 39 letters instead of the 38 okay that makes sense yeah good times uh, next one we have is sozialversicherungsfachangestellte auszubildner dear, dear listener i feel that simon's beginning to show off slightly look to see how quickly he just threw out that word yeah i'm gonna keep an eye on this <laughs> this seems to be the key for me like if i get it out as fast as possible i find them slightly easier if i get down to what all those words mean um it's a bit harder yeah at the end of it is like a trainee mm -hmm. often a zubi for apprentice uh, and yes sozialversicherungsangestellten uh, that's a social security assistant uh, so a trainee social security assistant uh, so again, not an yeah. everyday word, but if you are working in that sector, you're going to have to learn that on your first day. Ausbilder usually shorten the word Ausbildung to Azubi or Ausbilder uh, yeah. to Azubi. So would it not just be Sozialversicherungsfachangestellung uh, Azubi? Or would they just say, I am an Azubi? I imagine they probably even shorten it beyond that. I would just go, SV Azubi. <laughs> would probably be how I would try and get around that, I guess. This is it, isn't it? They've got all these great fancy words. No one's using them because everyone's like, this is ridiculous. No one needs to say this word. Let's shorten it. I'm going to take a run at the next one. So, Okay. Uh, Massenkommunikationsdienstleistung unternehmen. Very good, mate. Very good. And what yeah, is that? I was... Uh, I'm guessing it's uh, something to do with communication and some kind of official office company communication, maybe. It's, it's yeah, it's pretty close. Mass communication service company. Ah, right. Okay. I was gonna say I was gonna say mass communication, but I thought massen was too obvious. <laughs> I thought it was one of those. So I, I don't know if Twitter is Twitter a mass communication dislicensing unternehmen. I'm not sure. I guess I guess it is. Uh, so Simon, the next word is impresses with your speedy speech. Uh, so this is betäubungsmittelverschreibung for ordnung. Oh, did you hear that, yeah. listener? Oh, Ooh. oh yes. Ooh. That's how you're German. <laughs> That's how you do it. Yeah. Go on. Go on. What does that mean? And betäubungs is an interesting word because it's the, the German for narcotics. So that's a narcotics prescription okay. ordinance. Yeah, so if you, if you need to have some heavy-duty painkillers, you need a Betäubungsmittel for Schreiben for Ordnung. Do you want me to do the next one? Yeah, come on. Unabhängigkeitserklärung. Uh, so it's the... Is it a declaration of 
Independence. Very good, mate. And this is actually something you gave me when I left for America. You gave me a copy of the deck. That's right. Yeah, I did. I did. I'd forgotten about that. We got it from Boston. It was official. <laughs> it definitely wasn't a copy. We did the, the, the whole national treasure thing and stole it, like what Nick Cage did. And we brought it back to Germany. Um, yeah. So is it the Declaration of Independence or is it just any Declaration of Independence? I think it could be any Declaration of Independence. And uh, the final word we've got is one of the most famous words in German, but um, I believe it's not. It's no longer officially the longest word in German. It's a very long word. So there are a couple of variations on this, uh, depending on the object we connect to at the end. Uh, but a- any German will know this uh, for sure. And, and anyone learning German will at some point have this thrown at them. I mean, I, I haven't even counted how many letters there are. It's absolutely insane. Um, but yeah, here you go. This is the one I had to practice the most. So this is Donald Dampf Schifffahrt Gesellschaftskapitän's Judentorschlüssel. Very well done. I think that's a round of applause there. Excellent. Uh, so yeah, this is, I mean, this is an example of how ridiculous compound nouns can be and why people complain about long German words because that means that one word is the key to the door of the captain's cabin of the steamboat company on the Danube River. So that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I, I can't even count how many words there are. It's too many words to count, never mind how many letters. You're very uh, specific, and that's one of the things that you, you learn about German is they love like, very specific nouns for things. Mm-hmm. And it's why I think a lot of people, you'll often see it online, people go and what's the German word for like this sort of esoteric emotion or something like that, or some, some mm-hmm. external angst that doesn't have a name in English. Obviously, these these are very interesting, exciting words, and it's cool when you're able to say them, and it gives you a, a good feeling for your for your German. The, the The actual question, obviously, though, is why are German words so long? Uh, there's some linguistic theories as to why German likes these very long compound words. I guess you, your theory was Simon that it's, it's about speed, right? I mean, yeah, being concise and and speed is definitely a benefit. I mean, the final one there, like if I have to write out let's say 15 16 words like that's that's more space on a page mm. than a 60 letter word um so i guess yeah efficiency i mean I, I feel stupid even using the word efficiency when we're talking about german in the faq section i mean maybe it's just because it feels good i mean i'm full of adrenaline now <laughs> you're on a you're on a compound noun high i think i think <laughs> it's because the sign makers guild in the medieval era was like this is a way we're definitely, if we're charged by the letter, we're going to make a lot of money. <laughs> like, trying to make a quick buck. Anyway, so let's move on. Question two. This is a question that I often ask myself, usually as I'm banging my head against a wall. Why is German so hard? Simon, why is German so hard? I mean, there are so many examples of why German is hard, but I think the one that everyone learning the language falls sort of deeply in hatred with is der, die and das. Um, mm-hmm. So having word gender assignment is definitely one of the reasons why German is considered so difficult to learn. I mean, there are some pretty interesting examples as well. So, I mean, why is die Frau, the woman, that's feminine, but das Mädchen, the, the girl, is neutral? Mm. Um, that is really mind-boggling, and there are no fixed rules. And so, I mean, especially if you're from... England or an English-speaking country where we have no gender in our language, it's it feel everything feels weird. If I ask, mm. "Is that male or female?" and I get any answer, I'm going to be like, "That doesn't make any sense." So that's one issue, daddy das, and then you have sixteen versions of that depending on the tense, etc. It's it's a minefield. 
Uh, I've kind of given up learning it because it's the in all, in English, so everyone knows what I mean. <laughs> the other issue, of course, is that the spoken language is really different from the written one. So this is very interesting, but it's also very frustrating because no matter how well you know all the possible grammatical rules, the gender of a thousand nouns, the sentence structure, all of that kind of stuff, you most likely won't be able to understand a couple of things in everyday conversation. But in particular, informal situations, the spoken language has actually got its own name and it's called Umgangssprache, a vehicular language. One of the things that really characterise the spoken language is the, the small words, the filling words, that maybe don't really have any meaning on their own. But Germans used to give like tone to the sentence. And some of these are, are words like mal, schon, mm -hmm. halt, and doch. Now, those words, if you're speaking to someone, you'll hear them all the time. And they, if you're translating the sentence, they don't actually feel very necessary a lot of the time. You get the verb, you get the noun, you get the people involved in the sentence. So it is, it's challenging. So the use of these kinds of words really separate a native speaker mm -hmm. from someone who learned German as a second language. I, I remember very clearly, in fact, uh, the last time we were able to see each other, uh, and I said, it mal ab and your wife heard that and was like, whoa, your German's good, because I threw in a mal, because um, that's not what English people normally say. So that was one of my, my highlights, <laughs> speaking German in front of your wife. Um, we also have variations on questions as well. So, I mean, people might say, wo kommst du her and wo gehst du hin, mm -hmm. as opposed to woher kommst du and wohin gehst du. So Germans also like to liven up the language um, with particular expressions. So things like wie geht's, like how are you? Mm -hmm. uh, they'll probably prefer like mm -hmm. wie läuft's or wie ist es, these kinds of variations. And of course, this exists in English. Uh, we don't all walk around saying, how do you do? Um, we use mm -hmm. words like, all right, what's up? How's it going? Um, so, I mean, this is definitely a challenge of learning any language. But, yeah, it's just another reason why German can be tricky. You can study hard, and then when you meet someone for the first time and try your German, you're like, huh, why is mal in all these mm -hmm. sentences? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like it, learning a language, like any language, is obviously tricky. I know, especially people who speak more than one language, they'll know which one they found easiest to learn. And a lot of people will often say that English is quite easy to learn because it's it's easier to be, sound more proficient in English quickly than it is in in perhaps in in German. And and I think German is a very particular language, and people are polite enough not to constantly criticize when I speak. But you can tell almost instantly when you've got it wrong i think it's it's about having an ear for it as well surely and and the region that you live in learning german in the north is gonna it's like a different experience than learning it in the south so regional accents obviously play a part i mean i think for anyone learning a language you have to ask yourself do you want to be perfect mm. or do you want to sound like do you want to be understood and for all my years of teaching i always focus on like being understood getting mm. your message across is the first priority and it doesn't matter at all to me uh, if there's some sloppiness in there. Um, I like the fact now that when I speak German, mm -hmm, I, I mm -hmm. definitely sound like I've spent time here mm -hmm. as opposed to like I've studied really hard. Um, I think that's a, a better place to be. But if someone wants to correct my German, like I'm going to listen and say thank you. But in the back of my head, I'm also like, I don't care. <laughs> like, you understood what I wanted. <laughs> well, I think that's it. It's that, it's that, it's that battle that you've outlined, which is between proficiency and and being sort of understood and 
I think I think it's also tolerance of of badly spoken German. I think some people are more tolerant than others uh, mm. when they hear it. Some people can take it. Same with English. I mean, you find that the same experience when you hear non-native speakers make mistakes in English. You just sort of kind of got to get over it and just practice, I guess. But I think we also we're lucky as English people because people, especially here in Germany, don't necessarily expect us to speak German at all. Never mind having yeah, yeah, decent yeah. German. Um, so I mean, yeah, there's, there's definitely real joy in that. And like, all my German family, no one has ever been like, oh you didn't do that very well they're just like so thrilled that they don't have to speak english with me <laughs> I, I there was a moment i came like cause i live in a, a quite a studenty city and there's a lot of very keen and um untarnished i guess would be the des- best term <laughs> like young people knocking about the place working in shops and restaurants and bars and stuff and i remember going into a rossman to get something and you have to take a basket with you now when you go into a lot of these shops and that's become a regulation that you, if you go in the shop you have to have a basket because of the pandemic or whatever i'm not quite sure what the connection is anyway i got I got the basket and i actually i said to the woman as i was getting the basket do i need to have a basket and just straight away it was this like her accent was like this like we must have been early 20s was like so sir would you like prefer it if i spoke to you in english and i was totally just having my own man i was like no that's <laughs> <was> like nine <laughs> You looked at me so disappointed, and I was like, "Ah, oh, to be light, uh, blah blah blah," and sort of like explained it. But I, I was just absent-mindedly just said no, and she was crestfallen. But yeah, yeah, it happens. Anyway, let's let's move on. So, uh, question three: Why is Germany so clean? And this is a question that comes from uh, us asking Twitter. This comes from Glenn. I think he said that this is a question he often gets from visitors who've come to see him. They found mm-hmm. Germany to be much cleaner. And honestly, yeah, from my perspective, I'd agree. Uh, coming from the north of England and parts of Scotland, it definitely feels cleaner. It looks cleaner. Would you? You have a different opinion, though, Simon. I do, and I think it comes from being raised in a very sort of rich part of England. Like the town I grew up in was incredibly clean. Um, graffiti and things like that weren't really much a part of the scenery. And I think when you do come to Germany, especially as a tourist, if you go, mm-hmm. Munich is, is a really good example. You walk around Munich in, in the center of the city, it is, it's sparkling. Like you don't see litter on the floor. The only sort of thing you do notice a lot of is like chewing gum that's been spat out, but even that's taken care of pretty efficiently. But I think this is sort of the point. I mean, Glenn mentions that as people who come to visit ask him this, like, why is this so clean? And I mm-hmm. think it's just the nature of being a tourist. Um, if you go to London, and if I if I take anyone to London with me, one of the first things I'm going to do is go to Westminster with them, show them the mm-hmm. House of Parliament, walk along South Bank uh, to, the Tower, uh, to Tower Bridge, and then go to the Tower of London, and then take them to St. Paul's. And that whole walk is... It's beautiful, and you think, "Wow, London's really clean." But if you venture off into sort of mm. where places, the place where people actually live, then yeah, London's not an especially clean city. I mean, there's a real problem with urban foxes and the like, and they're not there because of the architecture. So yeah, I, I mean, I would also argue there are definitely problems that Germany faces, and one that I really have a problem with is is dog shit, which for some reason isn't treated mm-hmm. with the respect it should be. I think. I mean, yeah, I so say I've lived 
in England, lived in Wales, lived in uh, in North America, and places where there were a lot of dogs, and you don't really see poo left on the sidewalk. And here it is. A- yeah, yeah, it's really it's surprisingly a massive problem. <laughs> and some cities, it's it's a real problem. Like Berlin, like you hear about this all the time. So yeah, I think that's that's one issue I have. Like you do see dog dirt often, mm. and it's something that it fills me with rage because it is literally the only thing you have to do to be a good dog owner in in terms of your neighborhood is not leave the shit on the floor yeah um yeah i I get deeply upset about it i would say though that germany's the only country i've seen where there was workmen in the street using like an industrial vacuum cleaner to clean up leaves and to clean up dirt and and not just the road but on the actual path like i see i've seen that quite regularly in some cities and I, I, I would say, and I think, I think it's you spot on. Actually, it depends. It depends where you go. If you're a tourist and you go into tourist areas, they're usually cleaner. I would say there is actually walking around a lot of German cities a lack of waste bins. They don't seem mm-hmm. to be around as much. And I think there is an element of I, I see a lot more people around my area maintaining the front of their houses. Uh, there's like a responsibility. I mean, for us, we have to maintain. Mm-hmm. Like if if there's plants overgrowing the wall, we have to maintain that. We've talked about clearing snow, but I think also clearing mm-hmm. sort of debris and and rubbish is regulated by the city too. So there are certain in certain locations, certain cities. I'm not sure if it's nationwide. There are there are more rules about whose responsibility is it to look after the street mm-hmm. out, out the front of your house. I, I, every time I get I think about cleanliness and that question comes up. It takes me back to the time I took my wife back to um, a housing estate that my mum lives on in Newcastle, and we got off, we got off the the train, the metro, and we walked along, and we turned the corner, and there was some kids standing around burning a mattress. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, you don't see that, you don't see that so much in Germany. And I remember my wife saying, like, oh, we should. We should call the police and me just going, shut up. <laughs> Don't say <laughs> they that. They can hear you. They're, they're feral. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it is a very, it's different certainly than the places I used to frequent. Okay, moving on. Uh, this is great. I like question four because it gives me a chance to perfect my Seinfeld impression. So question four, what's the deal with speed limits? That's a really good Jerry Seinfeld. Well done. Uh, yeah, what can I say? After practicing in the mirror. Yeah, you know, I'm a man of three voices. <laughs> Two of them are Geordie. Yeah, so uh, this is a question that came up from... Well, actually, it was a question we already had, but Dr. Matasha Mazis on, on Twitter asked a similar question. Why does Germany refuse to have a speed limit on the Autobahn when they are so careful about other environmental and personal dangers? So, Simon, tell us about speed limits. I mean, obviously, when you ask like anyone about Germany, this is one thing that everyone knows, that the Autobahn is like this this furious speeding like beacon of freedom uh, and people do travel to germany to take advantage of that liberty but before the war there was only a limit of 30 kilometers an hour inside towns that was in force but there was no other general speed limits and then when the third reich was here uh, there was a general speed limit of 40 kilometers an hour in towns and 80 outside and this was mostly uh, apparently to conserve resources for the war and because several high-ranking third reich officials were killed in accidents on the new autobahn uh, so they realized there was a need for some kind of restriction and then of course because this was a wartime law effectively it was then nullified in 1952 by the bundestag and it wasn't replaced 
so at that time Germany wasn't alone. Most European countries didn't have speed limits. So up to 1957, there were no speed limits uh, in West Germany at all. And then in 1957, a speed limit of 50 kilometers inside towns was introduced. And then in 1972, a speed limit of 100 kilometers an hour rose outside of cities, except on the autobahn and on autostrassen with at least two lanes per direction of traffic was introduced. Uh, so there we have the introduction of the speed limits in 1957. A general speed limit was often discussed, but never introduced. And there's a very good reason for that, because in a recent poll, 89% of Germans were against a general speed limit on autobahns. And so basically, this is why we don't have a speed limit. It's political suicide to suggest one. Any politician that says we should have a speed limit, 90% nearly of the population are against that suggestion. So it just never gets far. People talk about it, but it's never going to get through... Uh, sort of popular uh, vote or anything like that going back to the question that dr matasha posed why does germany refuse to have speed limits on the autobahn i think that sort of sums it up that statistic you just gave us people really like it it's not just because they're the speed demons or speed freaks yeah there's just not it's not something that people really feel that they want to change about their, mm. their commute and of course we do have to quickly mention that autobahn doesn't mean no speed limit there are thousands of kilometers of autobahn mm -hmm. that, that are speed restricted uh, and the sections where there is no speed limit are shrinking every year. So yeah, it's not a paradise uh, for petrol heads entirely. You can still get arrested on the autobahn for driving fast. Yeah, that's true. And you can get a speeding ticket too. Question five. What's up with German toilets? No Seinfeld this time? No, because it's not a what's the deal is okay. the Seinfeld line. So what's up with German toilets? I could do that in sort of a children's TV presenter vibe. Like, what's up? <laughs> with German toilets <laughs> but I refrain from doing it this is something that comes up a lot obviously a lot of people who have spent time in Germany who have travelled to Germany gone on holiday in Germany will have noticed in certain toilets what you've labelled here the examination shelf mm -hmm. so do you want to give a quick run through of what the examination shelf is in a German toilet it just fills me with, with just terrible memories of flying over to Germany on holiday and having uh, an examination shelf on my dad's toilet mm. and just uh, the trauma of it so basically, in traditional like old-fashioned German toilets, there is a ledge. And when you defecate and use the toilet, it will land on the shelf. Mm. So you can examine your stool. So this has a very specific reason. And it's actually to show if you have worms. That was ah. the origin of this. It's not just because there's like a, an interest in, in stool. Uh, so it was introduced in the 19th century before there were mandatory inspections of meat. Uh, that would render the likelihood of, of worms being hopefully zero today. Thankfully, uh, pork inspections mean that this isn't really necessary anymore. But hang on, like I've got a toilet that's clearly from the sort of 80s and it has a shelf as well. So there's, there's something more going on, I think, with, with this idea that people, people seem to enjoy it to some extent or feel that it's a requirement of, of their toilet. I don't know why. I, I think it is quite a common question from your doctor. It is helpful if you do need to monitor your stool um, but this is something that is fading um, more often than not now Germans have adapted to well, I was German, <laughs> German builders are now installing modern toilets uh, with, with a water drop and of course you can still inspect uh, and you don't have to deal with the same level of reality because it is, it is a pretty grim reality <laughs> Telling me. Uh, speaking of the modernization of German toilets, uh, the, the the second point 
that you've you've got here is the button system. It's not something I'd thought about. I thought it was quite logical. I'd never been confused by the button flush that you have in German toilets because you usually have two buttons for the for the flushing mechanism of German toilets. And it's a water conservation point, isn't it? It's one is a is a big flush yeah. and what another one's a little flush for obvious reasons. I don't think we need to go into too much detail. I'm hoping our audience are aware of what happens in in toilets, you know. So, yeah, um but this is something I've seen in British homes too. Uh, we don't all have Armitage mm. Shanks Victorian porcelain in our homes. So, with this the large lever flushes around six to nine litres of water and the small does three to four and a half litres of water. And this means that um, if a household adapts this practice of dual flushing, it could save around 20,000 litres of water a year, uh, which is, yeah, is definitely a noticeable amount for, for the wallet as well as for, for, for Mother Earth. Uh, but it's eco-friendly, cuts down on your water bills, it's good for everyone. The only problem I have with it is I always have a slight panic every time I meet a new toilet with the two buttons. I'm like, is this the same as the last one or is this which one's which? Uh, it's a bit of a trial and error. <laughs> so question six is from Dilly. Uh, she asked this on Twitter. Uh, what's the most venomous animal, yeah, okay. in brackets, snake, insect, what have you, in a German forest? So honestly, I wasn't really expecting much from this, but I've actually been quite surprised by the answers that I found online. There are a few things we should be watching out for while we take a quick wanderung. First of all, we have two snakes that we need to be careful of, the Asp Viper and the European Viper. The Asp Viper is 90 centimetres and can be found around the southern Black Forest areas, usually in quarries, like bad things always happen in quarries. That's all I know. Its bite can be fatal in some circumstances, but usually it just hurts and swells up. Uh, so I'm thinking you have to be pretty unlucky to have been killed by an Asper Viper in Germany. Uh, the European Viper is also 90 centimetres. The crazy thing about the European Viper is it actually has a stronger venom than the more famous diamondback rattlesnake. But it doesn't actually produce that much of it. So the European Viper can be uh, found knocking about heaths, forest edges, coniferous forests, moors around northern Germany, the Black Forest, the Swabian Alps, the Bavarian Forest, and the actual proper Alps. Uh, so yeah, you've got two snakes that we need to be wary of. But uh, Next up we have the Yellow Sack Spider, which sounds pretty terrifying the yellow sack spider is located and oh my god it's crawling in your hair run quick run it's behind you okay seriously it's actually found in saarland rhine main area saxony anhalt and saxony and it measures about 1.5 centimeters the bite of the yellow sack is similar to a wasp sting although in some cases it may turn the wound dark or swell it up so that sounds pretty gruesome. <laughs> the fire salamander sounds like fun, and it sure it is at parties. It produces a poison through its skin. Unlike the psychedelic hypno frogs of the Amazon, these little blighters will usually just burn your skin, which is a shame because I've always thought Germany could do with some LSD producing frogs knocking about the place, make things a bit more interesting. And finally, we have the humble European garden spider, which deserves a mention simply because it is poisonous, but its fangs are not long enough to make it through human skin. So, better luck next time, you stupid little European garden spider. You can't get me. Uh, so, yeah, those are the venomous animals. Uh, the thing that shocked me was with Dilly's comment, people will just walk into the long grass without any any worries. And I was like, I hadn't thought of that as an issue <laughs> like, ever. That, like, don't walk in the long grass because there's things there that will kill you. But that's obviously not a big problem for Germans. But, yeah, that's there's our hmm. selection of venomous animals. Yeah, I, I, I didn't think there'd be that many. Question seven. Why don't people smile or greet each other on the street, but when you walk into a medical office, literally everyone stops what they're doing and greets you? It's a good question. When you walk into the waiting room 
and only the waiting room at your mm. doctor's. It's totally normal to greet the whole room here. In Bavaria, I'd give them a Gruß Gott or a Servus or even a Hallöchen if I'm feeling a little bit Ooh. optimistic with how my day has started. But yeah, that's pretty much one of the only places you do this, where you would greet complete strangers. Other places uh, where you would be expected to greet someone is in an elevator. Like Obviously, the proximity is an issue here. And then on a walk in the countryside, walking past someone, it's pretty standard to say hello, not much more. And apparently joggers as well are, are pretty common to, to greet each other. But yeah, I mean, other mm-hmm. than that, like saying hello to a stranger will often be met with, with some pretty big confusion. Obviously, regional differences apply, uh, city versus village and all that kind of stuff. Um, but generally speaking, meeting a total stranger and hitting them with a Gruscott can be a bit of a surprise for them. It's a contextual thing, exactly like you're saying. If you're walking down the street and you just see someone and say hello, you're probably, unless you're in a village, you're probably not going to get a response. But the context of a waiting room or an elevator, mm. proximity being as you said a factor uh, and also it's just sort of countryside politeness to say hello to someone as you walk past them on a, on a, on a wander uh, through the woods britain's perceived to be like a really polite society but actually in a lot of ways we don't do things like this we don't say hello to a group of people in a waiting room or on an elevator most of the time people are quite awkward and will prefer to avoid talking about or saying like greeting people or acknowledging people what you might get is kind of an awkward head nod or something like that from somebody but yeah uh, generally you're going to you're not going to get a a full-throated servus from the british uh, as you would in germany but i, I quite like it i think it's just it's just civility isn't it a general sort of accepted code of civility that we all have it's just not in the guidebook so i mean the first time i went to a doctor's i sat down and i didn't say anything because i'm used to not saying hello to a group of strangers and then the next person walks in and be like grüß gott and everyone looks up grüß gott next person walks in hello and everyone looks up hello and like there's eye contact there's all there's all the fixings um <laughs> and so yeah i was a bit shocked by it by the first time so hopefully any new listeners out there dabbling in German healthcare, uh, you're set now. <laughs> yeah, you're ready for it. Ready for anything. Okay, question eight. This is going to be an easy one. Is German beer the best in the world? Yes. Question nine. No. Yeah. Is German beer the best in the world? I would say it's very good. It depends what you mean by best. But Simon, you, what do you think? Best in the world? I'd say uh, across the board. Yeah, I mean, there are some fantastic beers from other countries. I mean, one of the, the historically great beers is, is Stein uh, Steinlager from New Zealand. That's won mm. series and series of, of gold medal cups and things. Um, but yeah, I think it's pretty hard to get a bad beer here. I mean, of course they exist, but it's a, a preference issue. But I think one of the things is just the sheer variety. Whatever you want, there's a beer for that. I mean, so I don't really want to go into too much detail about all the different types of beer. So, I mean, you've got Pilsner, you've got Helles, you've got Dunkles, you've got Kölsch, you've got Altbeer, you've got Weissbeer, Wheatbeer, you've got Kristall, you've got Hefe and Dark, Starkbeer, Bockbeer, Schwarzbeer, Berliner Weiss in red or green, Märchen, Oktoberfestbeer, Goethe, Naturtrübbeer, Rauchbeer, Radler, Alsterwasser, Maustrunk, Whatever you want, you're going to find something. That, I mean, there's other varieties I haven't even included in that list. 
so yeah it's a case of just finding what you like personally i'm, I'm keeping it simple i like a hellas yeah me too there, there are over seven thousand varieties of beer in germany i believe uh, in brewed in roughly 1300 breweries and a good fifth of these are found in the region that we both live in bavaria yeah there's just loads of different variety that's uh, and I, I was surprised i did a, a world cup of beers as a sort of jokey thing the thing you got to realize with when you talk about beer is you probably shouldn't joke about beer because there's a lot of people who take this shit really seriously and have no sense of humor and got very upset that i was comparing a vice beer to a hellas as if i'd broken some sort of unwritten code of the beer uh, aficionados anyway when i did the world cup of beer over christmas i learned a lot about like all these different varieties but also how some regions like Kolsch is a good example they're uniquely brewed in these areas mm. and they're considered like champagne isn't champagne unless it's brewed in the champagne region Kolsch is the same in that respect uh, so there's a lot of that but yeah i just think there's a lot of different ones whether it's the best in the world i think is tricky to uh, don't really like to say it's the best in the world but it's pretty much up there <laughs> it's in the top 10 let's I think say especially come from the uk like we have if, if you drink like lager which is probably the most common uh, for most people's drinking beer you've you've guzzled lots of chemicals and preservatives and this is something that germany does incredibly well it's a very natural product if you stick with the beer and drink four five six seven eight of them odds are you you're not going to have as bad of a headache as you would if you were getting smashed on fosters or carlsberg or one of those really huge international brands from from anheuser busch or someone like that but yeah if you want to try then yeah southern bavaria is definitely the right place to to go on a beer holiday <laughs> yeah you could be there forever that's i only came here for a beer holiday and i've been here for 10 years <laughs> question nine why do german proverbs make no sense i found this question actually offensive it upset me this question why do german proverbs make no sense and i was like all proverbs and other languages make no sense like let's just accept that right now that they don't make any sense totally. german ones make particularly no sense we've got a few here die kuh vom eisholen which is get the cow off the ice which I think actually makes sense. It generally just means bef- do something before it's too late. Clap a afatort. Close the lid. The monkey is dead. <laughs> <laughs> I love this one. It's so good. And what does it mean? It means it's the end. It's over. It's done. The monkey is dead. There's no more to do. I love that. The afa is afatort. It's just so. It's not even afa is tort. Afatort. It's just so. It's so like evocative. And he's telling me that doesn't mean anything. It means a lot. Clearly, it means a lot. And the next one is dalik de haza im pfeffer. The rabbit lies in pepper, which yeah if you're going to eat it i guess that's pretty good uh, that's the problem or deciding factor now this one clearly doesn't make a lot of sense when you translate it i'm not sure what whether it's a cooking analogy or something like that i'm assuming it is but if somebody said it to me i might ask them <laughs> what the hell does that mean well, i mean this is a very common theme i mean we, we've had this before animals uh, in idiomatic language in german is a big thing of course agricultural uh, history uh, means that we do have a lot of these um, so yeah, next one doesn't have anything to do with, with animals, but it's about food. Du gehst mir auf den Keks. You're walking on my cake. <laughs> what does it mean? What? Yeah, you're upsetting me. You're stressing me out. Yeah, and I wouldn't. It's, it, I guess it's like um, who who took the jam out of your donut. I guess would yeah. be a good a good a good example. <laughs> the next one is ich glaube ich spinner. I like this one. The idea of someone being a, a spinner, a spider, is is also like an insult to to, to say someone's crazy. Yeah, du spinst. Du spinst exactly. Uh, so ich glaube ich spinner. I believe I spider. <laughs> I I just love the practicality of this one to one translation. I think I spider. Not I think I am a spider. Or yeah. I think I'm spidering. 
Uh, I think I spied her. I think it's is it to do with like I I think I'm going a bit crazy. Yeah, you see this on postcards every now and again, like in English, um, because yeah, the Germans find this hilarious <laughs> as well. Uh, there's a lot of these. Yeah, yeah. It's funny when they translate into English. Another one that I love is "Jetzt haben wir den Salat." Now we have the salad, <laughs> which so means good. like it's all. Yeah, here we are. It's all gone wrong. This is the result of a difficult situation. <laughs> now we got yeah. the salad. <laughs> Look what a fine mess you got me into. Is is not as good as Perfect. yeah. Let's have a real dense salad. Yeah, I, I love it. If I write a sitcom, that's going to be the, the the tagline for sure. But yeah, I mean, none of these really make sense translated. But then if you look at English proverbs, they're not really making any sense either. To keep your eyes peeled, horrible. Peeling your eyes, like how grim is that? What's the other one? Is uh, there's more? There's there's more than one way to skin a cat. Was one I was thinking about. Nice, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, like, or even like, there's not enough room in here to swing a cat. Mm. Uh, like both those, just why, why, why are you punishing this cat? What did it do to you? Yeah, another one that maybe another animal one stuffed to the gills. <laughs> I don't have gills, uh, and I don't want to be stuffed to them, even if I did have them. So yeah, let's let's leave these poor fish alone. Yeah. So so if you want to know the answer to why do German proverbs make no sense, you you have to tell us what keep your eyes peeled means first. <laughs> okay. Question 10. This one is going to basically be the end of the show as, as Simon and I debate the most important question of the 21st century. Who is the best German footballer playing today? Yeah, I mean, obviously Germany is, is, is a, a rich land when it comes to football talent. But I kind of figure that at the moment there's six names, maybe seven you could put up there. So Manuel Neuer, mm-hmm. uh, goalkeeper for Bayern Munich in Germany. Joshua Kimmich. Mm-hmm. Thomas Muller, maybe Marco Royce, Leroy Sane, Timo Werner, and mm-hmm. Kai Havertz. I guess these are probably the forerunners in this competition. If I had to pick one of them, I I, I probably I probably go for Josh Kimmich. He's playing very well at the moment, for sure. I was surprised yeah. you didn't have Jerome Boateng in there. I would have said is a defender. He's one of the, the the most talented. He's won basically everything you could win as a as a footballer. And I, I, he's just uh, he's edging towards the end of his career. I think if we'd done this three years ago, he would have been one of the first names in this. Yeah, list. okay. But I mean, he also he got absolutely skinned a few seasons ago by Neymar, and I think that's sort of damaged my uh, my memories of him. But yeah, I mean, no doubt Boateng is 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 an incredible footballer. I would say um, I would say for my money, I'm going to choose Thomas Muller for a couple of reasons. Not that he's actually the best footballer, like technically, he's not the most gifted. But there's a couple of things that I like. I like the fact that he he doesn't move or act like a footballer. He doesn't look like a footballer. Mm-hmm. He he seems to sort of have no control over his appendages, but they he always <laughs> manages to appear in the right place. And the other reason I like Thomas Muller is he came he came up with a, a way of explaining how he plays the game and he created a new word to explain how he plays the game. And the word is Raumdeuter, which is roughly translated space interpreter. And that's how he sees his game mm-hmm. is he's less about being technically gifted and more understanding where to be to, to to either make the best pass or to be passed to and as for that also mm. the fact that he's he's properly Bavarian <laughs> so when you see him interviewed he's really <laughs> really Bavarian and there's just something about there's something about him I hate it when he scores in a, uh, against uh, teams that I want to see win and he does that with uh, but, but shocking regularity but yeah I, I really I really enjoy watching Thomas Muller play it gives me hope that 
even at 37, I might one day be able to play football. <laughs> <laughs> Hope springs eternal. Uh, yeah, he, he's world class, no doubt about it. And he is very funny as well. Yeah, I think out of all of them, if I had to spend mm. an evening with any of them, my first pick would be Thomas Muller. Get the lederhosen out and go full Bayern. I would be peeking in the windows, hoping to get an invite. Question 11. Why are Germans so concerned with drafts and air in general? This is a real tough question. I think there's no easy answer. But yeah, anyone who lived, who's lived in Germany for any length of time will be aware of the German fear of moving air, whether it's hot moving air or cold moving air. Uh, there's, there's always concern over it. So Simon, you've got some ideas about why Germans are so concerned about air? airflow i mean not really i just think of a few a few examples mm-hmm. of where you really notice it so there's this thing called stoßluften uh, which is something that's actually in your contract when you rent a property where you have to like air on a daily basis your your rooms it can be quite perplexing if, if you're not from here um it's like minus five outside and someone's like got their window fully open in the morning to air the room I'm not a huge fan of it because I don't like cold air first thing in the morning, but it's something I've had to adapt to. Drafts are a big thing. I mean, the only person I remember Mm -hmm. talking about drafts growing up was my grandma. Like, she'd feel a draft. I don't feel them. Um, (laughs) I don't know if it's just because of my, my hot English blood. But it's just not an issue for me. And the other thing you notice is scarves. Scarves are a huge thing in Germany. And especially in the corporate environment, you can walk into a room Mm -hmm. and know who's got a cold because they're wearing a scarf any mild twitch of the nose any mild cough scarf on protect your neck to i mean maybe the wu-tang maybe the wu-tang are all about this as well i don't know (laughs) with the wu-tang secretly german Yeah, it's, I'm I'm constantly having debates with my wife about having the window open in the summer. The summer's when I feel it the most. I don't mind cold air so much, although it's not really what I want um, first thing in the morning or last thing at night. But I, I've come to understand why airflow is important, and and it, it, you do see I do feel a benefit from having uh, fresh air in, in in a room. But the the, the the argument I always have is about having the windows open when it's the summer or driving on the roads when with the windows open in the mm-hmm. summer. My wife and I will get into numerous arguments about whether that's acceptable. The the thing I always find kind of funny is the point about about scarves because one of the stereotypes about Newcastle and Geordies in general is that they like to go out in t-shirts when it's snowing and they don't wear coats. Uh, it's the only place that I've ever lived where... Uh, on a particularly cold winter evening, I saw in, in a weather report that said that was strictly telling the people of Newcastle that they had to wear coats. <laughs> I've never seen that in anywhere else I've lived. The idea of wearing a scarf for me, certainly initially living in Germany, was seen as kind of an admission of defeat. So I would, mm-hmm. I would definitely not wear one. But now I've, I've come to appreciate that wandering around the streets in minus eleven in winter is not a good time to try and show how tough you are by just wearing a t-shirt. I, I've got a nice warm coat, a nice warm scarf haven't bought a hat but you know there's still time for that i'm sure so i got no hair anymore so a hat is, <laughs> yeah. is it's a, uh, it's it's all about survival for you my friend <laughs> okay uh question 12 do all germans love pork it almost sounds a little bit insulting the stereotype but i mean there is some truth to it so apparently on average every germ every apparently on average every person in germany consumes 88 kilograms of meat per year <laughs> that's, uh, that's a lot. grim that's really a lot of meat. 56 kilos of that will be pork so i mean it's well over 50 percent 19 percent is poultry 
and 13 kilos is as beef. This could be a myriad different reasons. Just tradition. The best recipes have been pork recipes. It could be because of the way sort of farming developed in Germany. You'd have to go far, far back. The reason that the British love sheep so much is a lot to do with sheep being a, a cash crop. Not mm. only could you sell the meat, you could sell the wool, and they're actually quite easy to maintain yeah. and all of these things. So it's the reason lamb is on the menu in, in a lot of British restaurants. You thought it would be interesting to go through uh, some of the, the better pork recipes or p- pork dishes that we have in Germany, or the top five, I believe. I mean, if you like pork, there, there are some fantastic choices out there. So this is the top five according to tasteatlas.com. Uh, so number five, they have Schäufele. Lovely. Uh, Schäufele is a personal favourite. It is a very traditional dish from southern Germany using pig shoulder uh, as the main ingredient. Depending on the region... The meat can be cured and smoked beforehand, seasoned, and then it's either roasted or boiled. It is a, an absolute classic here in Franconia. If you do feel the need to travel to Nuremberg uh, for uh, a trip, definitely try a Schäufele. Next up, we have Eisbein. So this translates as ice leg, uh, and this is also a pork knuckle or a pork hot, uh, which is first cured or pickled and then boiled with vegetables and herbs. Uh, so in Berlin, uh, the hock is served bone in on a bed of sauerkraut accompanied by mashed potatoes or a pea puree usually with some mustard on the side so that sounds pretty delicious too number three schweinshaxe uh, so haxe or haxen depending mm-hmm. there are lots of different variations on the pronunciation of this uh, but here in franken it's haxen so this is predominantly bavarian and it is a whole pork knuckle roasted for hours until it's thoroughly cooked and the skin becomes golden brown and crispy mm. The knuckle is almost mm. always served whole, and it's usually accompanied by sauerkraut, braised cabbage, roast potatoes, or potato dumplings. And uh, number two on the list is Spanferkel, and uh, this is the German version of a roasted suckling pig. Not an everyday dish, and not something you cook at home, but if you can get it whilst you're out. Mm. And the number one is Schweinebraten. This is definitely my wife's favourite. And Schweinebraten is traditional pork roast originating from Bavaria, typically prepared for Sunday lunch. Consists of sliced pork roast that's served with homemade gravy, semmelknödel or bread dumplings in English, or potato dumplings if you're that way inclined, either with sauerkraut or rotkohl, uh, which is red cabbage. Uh, so yeah, which of those would you like now for dinner? Uh, all of them? Yeah, I yeah. think it's going to be the uh, Schäufele. I, I can't yeah, I ca- the I can't give up my uh, Nuremberg brethren, so yeah. <laughs> Delicious. I'm really hungry now. Okay, let's 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 get things moving then. I, I'm going to have to go and eat some pork. Uh, I've got 88 kilos to eat before the end of the year. Uh, <laughs> question 13. How did David Hasselhoff save Germany? Now, this is one of my favourite... <laughs> favorite stories about germany but this idea that david hasselhoff was somehow responsible for the berlin wall coming down has i think been slightly embellished by hasselhoff's pr team but or even uh-huh. hasselhoff himself as you may or may not know the the fall of the berlin wall was kind of a bit of a mix-up on november 9th 1989 uh, notice about the uh, changes was handed to a spokesperson gunter Schabowski, who read uh, these new rules to a press conference uh, the reporters were surprised, and when asked about the changes to to the the crossing points at, over across the wall, they asked when these uh, rules would come into effect. And Shabosky, not having any particular information on when this would come into effect, said the immortal lines ab so fort, which means immediately. And so it began a series of events that would eventually lead to the crossing points across the Berlin Wall being opened and allowing East Berliners and West Berliners to finally. 
uh, come together. Hasselhoff was, at this point, little known outside of America. He was known for, I believe, such TV shows as, as Knight Rider. And he came to Germany in December 31st, 1989. Uh, he was suspended from a crane above a crowd of one million adoring Germans and in a improbably battery-powered jacket, crooned to the crowd, I've been looking for freedom. I've been looking so long. I've been looking for freedom. Still the search goes on. Although Hoff was nowhere near the Berlin Wall coming down on November 9th, 1989, remember he was. this is him in December, he did seem to appear and became sort of iconically linked with the, that period and that era of the wall coming down. Really, David Hasselhoff didn't save Germany, but he did. He did a nice concert for them. That's what he did. And it is—it's a really iconic moment in the history of the Berlin Wall. And I mean, I—I I quite like the fact that he goes around the world, kind of pretending that he's some unifying force. <laughs> I find that quite charming. <laughs> Okay, question 14. English football fans consider Germany their ultimate rival. Is there the feeling mutual, Simon? The quick answer is no, and, like, not at all. <laughs> they don't care. No one cares about us. Yeah. So, I mean, if you ask a German like who the rival is when it comes to football, they'll either say the Netherlands uh, or Italy. Uh, Italy is, is definitely the sort of the modern foe. With England, the rivalry is, is kind of inconsequential, really, uh, in the eyes of Germany. The idea that England matter at all <laughs> to the Germans when it comes to football is is a pretty cute uh, story we tell ourselves in England to so imagine that we're with the big boys. A rude awakening to realise we were we were further down the rankings than Italy. Question 15 is a question that uh, lots and lots of people ask online. I did a little bit of research on this. What's up with paprika-flavoured crisps? They're nice. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's, a, it's a solid flavour, but it would, not even in my top 10 when it comes to crisp choices. The weird thing is, there was actually a survey done, and first place was paprika. Second was Ungarish or Hungarian, which is also paprika. Uh, yeah. Same flavour. <laughs> and then third, we have the Americans coming in with sour cream and onion. Uh, so there's the modern push, I guess, in third place. What's frankly incomprehensible about that top three is that Erdnus flips are not in there. Erdnus oh. flips are the best the best chips in... Are you or serious? If we're going to say chi- Yeah, yeah, they're amazing. They're so That's good. I know you do. Oh, they're the oh. best. They're so good. Uh, they're just I could eat an entire bag of those without even questioning in it. Oh. Yeah, amazing stuff. I tried to work it out. <laughs> I read a rather spicy, given the context of the of of, of the flavour thread on Reddit. Someone asked the question, "Why do Germans like paprika crisps so much?" And uh, some rather defensive Germans were saying, "Well, we just like them, okay? They're just the kind of crisps we like." Do I, why do we have to answer these stupid questions? And I was like, fair enough. It's true. Like, why would you have to answer them? Uh, what I did learn, though, is one of the premium brands in Germany, Funny Frisch, which is one of the biggest chip brands in Germany, crisp brands in Germany, they uh, entered the market with the Ungarish flavour back in the 60s. Okay. So it's it just, it, it's possibly just, it was one of the first flavours of crisps available. And so people like them. Uh, question 16 do all germans wear lederhosen for those who might imagine that the germans like to a little bit of leather on leather action very few people actually wear lederhosen outside of bavaria i believe it's popular in baden-württemberg but if you move further north you're gonna see less and less tracked and worn which is the 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 overarching term for both lederhosen and uh, a dindle which is the women's traditional dress so it's not a german tradition so much as it's a bavarian tradition 
Question 17. Why do Germans have square pillows and two duvets? Now, we've talked about my purchase of new pillows to match the uh, typical English pillow that you would uh, you would find in most English homes but or British homes. But yeah, you, you, if you go to hotels in Germany or you stay at someone's house, you'll often be confronted with a square pillow, which is an 80 by 80. Yeah, quadratus. 80 by 80, yeah. Euro pillow is what it's called in Walmart in America. Yeah, and again, it's just something that seems to have developed over time that these this has been the traditional pillow. The two duvet thing is is common because you have, often you in, in a double bed, you'll have two mattresses instead of just a single i think it just makes sense it makes sense because with two duvets there's never a fight over who's who's got the duvet who's too cold or who's not cold we have two duvets in our home i don't believe you do though do you no i i would find it totally bizarre it's like sleeping like like sleepovers back in like childhood i i do understand that there, there are a lot of couples that do have this fight for a duvet and all i'm gonna say to these people is buy a duvet that's one size bigger than your bed uh, we have a queen size bed but a king size duvet no i i would hate to do this the german way i'm very happy that we have one mattress one duvet and 80 by 40 pillows question 18 is it true that germans are very rude yes they're all terrible <laughs> this is the so in the job that i do uh working teams and individuals talked about intercultural communication talking about communication in general the question of politeness always comes up and it is a minefield. The debate over universal politeness, whether there is a concept of universal politeness, global politeness, is, it, yeah, it's it's ongoing. Are the Germans rude? The question, I guess, is who is asking? So if the British are asking, are the Germans rude? Then it depends what things you consider politeness. So holding open doors, maybe, or saying please, or apologising for literally everything. <laughs> Nearly all our sentences start with some combination of unfortunately, I'm afraid, or just sorry. So um, Germans don't do that. Germans do not apologise <laughs> at the beginning of their sentences. They don't show deference by apologising. So if, if you're expecting that uh, as a gauge of the politeness of Germans, then they're going to be considered impolite. But if you're gauging them by what Germans consider politeness... Yeah, the group politeness. I mean, obviously, you've got the formal form of their language as well, so you can just be polite by using the correct structures with someone as well. Uh, you can be deferential that way. I mean, also, this is a mm-hmm. really interesting thing, is, like, honesty is politeness here. Like, someone telling you the truth, that's being polite. Whereas, from our culture telling someone what might be a brutal or very sort of mm-hmm. hyper honest truth feels sort of like a, a personal attack and so this is something i've had to adjust to often i'm the problem it's me being sensitive to things mm-hmm. as opposed to someone being rude uh, but i had an interesting example yesterday where i went to my bakery and there's a guy who works there he's not german very nice but we speak german with each other of course uh, and mm-hmm. there's an offer at my bakery if you buy uh five of the seed brooch and then it's cheaper i buy four because that's how many i need in a day and every time he tells me if you buy one more it's this much and i'm always like okay yeah i'll get the fifth one then uh, and this time he just said to me you know this sie wissen das doch is that what he said to me and i was just like oh my god <laughs> what <laughs> uh but he's he was he was right i did know it <laughs> He's trying to do you a favor. And it's the same with like simple interactions. Like I remember an interaction recently where I asked somebody where where the post yeah. office was. 
and the interaction if you translated it was just it was no frills i said i, I was frilly i said excuse me do you know where the post office is the, the woman looked up <laughs> went yes over there there was what you'd expect in a lot of those situations where there would be some extra like maybe there would be like a yes love or something like that in english or there would be like mm. some some maybe a joke or, or they might say someone might say oh mm. i'm always i'm always being asked that or something like that there would be some weird friendly sentence you just don't get that stuff which is just the, the way the way it is and and uh, if yeah. you know the person then you might do but if you're just asking some random on the street then you're probably not going to get that or you shouldn't really expect it to happen whether germans are rude or not i always find is a kind of an almost a ridiculous question because yeah if the person's american then you have to tell me first what what's american politeness or if the person is chinese what's chinese politeness you know like we can't we're, we're gauging them on on completely different sets of rules but yeah the honesty thing's important definitely Okay, question 19. We're almost there, Simon. Almost there. Yeah, we're getting there. Why do Germans queue so differently from the British? This is a, a good question. The British are natural queuers. It's part of our DNA, I believe, that we just form queues. There was a great story a few years ago. There was, uh, there was a show or a concert on and people were required to wait outside the venue. And without being asked, they had all formed into a serpentine queue, which is one of those queues that sort of curves around. You usually get them at airports and they're marked out by special markers in this particular instance the people queuing had just formed one naturally instead of having to be told um, how to queue effectively but what you see when you come to germany is a quite a different approach to queuing and i've wrote an article about it where i I described i described it as it's more like a contact sport (laughs) so yeah would you say that um German queues are quite different from the ones you've experienced in Britain. Yeah, the supermarket's definitely the best place to observe this. Like when you see a new checkout being opened, it doesn't matter if the person in front of you is 80 with like one thing in their hand, someone is going to try and get ahead of them no matter how big their trolley is. For, again, because of my sensitivities in this where I'm always, my inclination is to say, after you, it can be quite painful to watch. And so I am a little bit sensitive about it. The other issue I have is the proximity of queuing is very different. Uh, so it's not uncommon pre-corona yeah. Um, yeah. to have the next person behind you in the queue like centimetres away from you, maybe even feeling their breath on your neck. Here in Germany, the cultural space is a little bit smaller than what it is in the UK. But I mean, it's interesting. As I, I think I've told the story quickly before where um, my wife used to travel to work on a corporate bus um, and the company is full of international people and you'd see people joining the queue at the bus station and then giving space to each other and you'd see Germans driving past on the road like looking up being like what is going on there who are these people uh, because they were queuing in a totally non-German way <laughs> <laughs> okay we finally made it to question 20 I don't know about you Simon I'm sweating my legs hurt a little bit I need some electrolytes perhaps a bottle of Lucozade, but we've, we've got through this marathon together. So question 20, Simon, it's a big one. Is it better to live in England or Germany? Yeah, I mean, when I first came here, I thought I was going to be here for a year, maybe two. That was a decade ago. It's not always been smooth sailing. There have been times where I've thought, like, what am I doing here? But it would take one hell of an offer for me to, to take my family and go home to the UK. When I'm back home, I love it. Of course, it's wonderful to see family and friends and to be reminded of all the amazing countryside, uh, the amazing culture that we have back home. But I think for quality of life, for cost of living, Germany is is very, very hard to beat. 
I'll be here for the foreseeable. When, I, when I'm asked this question when I'm back in the UK, sometimes Germans will ask it, but more often than not, it's people in the UK ask us, what's, what's better, the UK or Germany? And I give them the same answer. Better to live in Germany because that's where all my stuff is. That's <laughs> <laughs> where I keep my stuff is in Germany. It's a, it's a toughie. I mean, m- my wife and I have this sort of idle, ongoing daydream about moving to the northeast coast and, and living in Tynemouth and being able to live next to the sea. And I think, in all honesty, the, the question of whether we'd live in England or Germany is it's not really the question it's whether we'd live in Newcastle or Germany those are the, the two options I think for all the things you've listed there that the, the mm-hmm. quality of life in Germany is, is definitely better there's a lot of different advantages not just regards to the things you can buy in the shops or the places you can you can go but if you think about things like the various festivals we have it always feels like certainly pre-corona and hopefully post-corona there's always a festival to go to there's always an event to go to didn't feel, really feel the same way in the UK uh, except for maybe bank holidays I think just the the opportunities you're afforded are a little bit more exciting but they're quite prosaic answers I think ultimately it's it's a blast living in Germany it's I still get a kick out of going into supermarkets and I do feel like going to a supermarket on holiday you know where you just see stuff and you see things that are just every day it's interesting that every day it's a it's a bit of a challenge as well it's never easy and I think that's that's something that I really get a kick out of there are definitely ups and downs of being an immigrant in any country but i I do think that that notion Mm -hmm. of like every day being a small adventure is really really thrilling yeah i still get almost overwhelmed whenever i walk into nuremberg because it is so beautiful yeah and i feel very privileged uh, to be here and i think when we look at how since brexit especially germany's kind of opened its arms to people like us i mean obviously nick is a german citizen the fact that it's easy for me to stay and the german government has said yeah we want you to stay is is a really wonderful feeling and i'm very thankful for multiple things that germany has given me my wife an amazing group of friends lots of adventures lots of life experience i never would have had back home so yeah long may the adventure continue all for it yeah too right there's there's always stuff that I'll 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 enjoy when I go back to England, but yeah, home home for me is definitely Germany. You're just thinking about sausage rolls, aren't you, mate? Ah, uh, yeah, I'm thinking about. So- I've been spending far too much time thinking about Greg's sausage rolls. <laughs> so, honestly, two years without one, it's getting a bit excessive at this point. Uh, anyway, we'll get there. I'm sure I'll make some. I'll make some myself. It's not that hard. Hello, Zusammen. That brings us to the end of show number twenty. A few thank yous to make this week. To Rob, Maurizio, Ten, Steve, Snooker and Karen, thank you for retweeting the show last week. Uh, To Snooker especially, I hope you're enjoying the new breakfast ritual. We're curious though, what are you having? Salami? Cheese? Eggs? A nice bowl of muesli? Either way, guten appetit. If you want to help us out with a retweet or just want to share the show, don't forget to tag us with hashtag decadesfromhome, all lowercase, so we can find you and give you a shout out on next week's show. As ever, if you have any questions, feedback, or maybe an article or topic you'd like us to cover, you can tweet Simon on at Decades From Home. You can tweet me at 40% German. You can also get us on 40% German at gmail.com. If you have time, take a look at 40%German.com. Weekly articles are up every Saturday. All that's left to say is thanks and bis zum nächsten Mal. Welcome to Decades From Home. Simon and I can't come to the phone right now, but please leave a message after the beep. This is Bobby Template of the law firm Template Template Vase, acting on behalf of Mr. David Hasselhoff, a.k.a. the Knight Rider, a.k.a. Mitch, a.k.a. the Hoff. 
We listened with interest to your recent podcast and would warn you that besmirching the good name of Mr. Hasselhoff by suggesting he has anything other than an instrumental part in ending the decades-long division of East and West Germany and, moreover, ending the protracted conflict known as the Cold War could lead to litigation. We request you cease and desist your defamatory statements and stick to talking about bacon and German TV or whatever else you limey assholes talk about. We would also request Mr. Maddox return the freedom he borrowed from Mr. Hasselhoff last year. It took our client many years to look for all that freedom, and he isn't in the business of just giving it out for free. You've been warned.